Jim. It's so good to talk to you again. Who do you got okay. lined up for me today? Oh, well, um, we are going to be talking to Paul Gorski. Oh my gosh. So I'm a fan of his. Um, I say that, I think, every week. I've got a <laughs> lot of people that I like. Um, but uh, Paul has uh, been writing about issues of equity and social justice for many years. And um, I thought it was really interesting because he just had an article in Educational Leadership called How Trauma-Informed Are We Really? Yeah. And um, I thought it was an interesting take on, um, you know, social-emotional learning, trauma-informed practices and uh, something that, that I hadn't read a whole lot about previously. Yeah. So Yeah, very good. I'm so excited because I went through and read the article as well. And uh, boy, he brings up some really good points. So let's go ahead. I see that he's ready and let's go bring him in and, and start our dialogue. Okay, you ready? Fantastic. Yeah. Hello, Mr. Gorski, sir. <laughs> Hi. We are so glad to have you join us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, happy to join you. Yeah. Oh, I want that set up at my house. <laughs> uh, I figure I'm uh, I'm on uh, Zoom so much. I yeah. maybe ought to have a decent backdrop. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, I also like the Derek Bell book that you have uh, right behind your head. So that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that book was uh, transformative for me, right? When I needed uh, a little nudge. So, yeah, very cool. Very cool. My name is Tracy Vandy Venter. I am so excited to meet you and have you be part of our podcast. Uh, I love your work. I love the way that you continue to push our thinking outside of what our traditional boundaries have been. And uh, knowing that those boundaries haven't always served us well. So thank you for being out there in the front and uh, just continuing to encourage us to be our best. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I feel fortunate to get to sort of build my professional life around stuff I'm passionate enough about that I, uh, you know, I just uh, enjoy it so much and, and love the ways people engage with it. So. Yeah, very good. Yeah, and uh, Dr. Gorski, I just introduced you just a moment ago as, um, you know, somebody I'm a big fan of. So uh, anyway, I, I have been reading your work for a while, so uh, I'm excited that we get the opportunity to, to talk to you today. Wonderful. Yeah, great to talk to you all. So your latest article, or maybe it's not even your latest now, but uh, an article that just came out in Educational Leadership um, about trauma-informed education caught our eye, and so we thought we might start with that article, and then we can maybe go into some of your other work. But in the article, you talk a little bit about trauma-informed uh, work that schools are doing and how that runs the risk of maybe becoming the latest shiny new program. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in a, actually, in a previous article, I wrote about what I called uh, popular uh, equity detours uh, and one of those detours is the kind of shiny new thing detour where uh, I think there's just something about the culture of education that these sort of we kind of cycle through these popular programs and initiatives and just sort of grab onto them like they're going to solve all the problems. And if, you know, if they ever were able to solve all the problems, we wouldn't have to keep cycling through them because <laughs> we eventually learn that they really don't solve any underlying problem at all. Uh, and, uh, and, and 
And there's this weird thing where some of them are even sort of cultish where people grab onto them and invest their whole like education identity in them and then really struggle to have any kind of kind of critical reflection. And I think that's kind of what's happening with trauma informed, uh, maybe kind of as a, in some ways, a subset of social emotional stuff. And, you know, the danger is in expecting that this program is, you know, this or initiative is going to be able to solve problems that it was never designed, problems that are more deeply embedded just in the structure of things and in the ideologies of, of people and institutions. And it, it never works. It has never, ever worked. And, you know, in 10 years, nobody's going to be talking about trauma-informed education because that's the life cycle of these things. Just like nobody's talking about emotional intelligence yeah. now or learning styles because right. you know, that's what happens. We'll be on to the next thing. Came and went, right. You know, uh, some time ago, we actually had some guests on and we talked a little bit about psychological safety, which I think was addressing some similar themes in that we want to create these spaces, uh, of course, for our students um, and families, but then even for our employees uh, that are places where we are nurtured and supported and given ways that we can grow. And I, I was curious, uh, from my own experience, I was at the secondary level for a while, short while, mostly my experience has been at the elementary level. And I felt so heavy when I was in the buildings at the secondary level and, mm. and, and felt from the students also this sort of weariness that wasn't present. You know, at the elementary level, they're still skipping to the bathroom uh, generally, right? You know, and that's exciting. And that's like the challenge we have sometimes is no, no, you got to walk in the hall. But I recognize that lightness and that kind of, of openness really seemed to kind of uh, disappear as kids got older. And I just wanted to hear more about your feelings re related to the work we do at the different levels. Well, it's really interesting. You know, I, I think some of the even uh, younger children many have some kinds of heaviness yeah. uh, in their lives as well. So, so I, I know I did, so I, I wouldn't want to discount, uh, discount that. But, uh, you know, I think the impact of it changes for people over time or becomes a bigger part of their just kind of day-to-day -day, uh, beings uh, over time. So, uh, you know, so I think we have to attend to it. And, and the stuff that we don't attend to it for younger kids grows into something harsher as those kids get older. And again, I know that did for me. I know the way that my own traumas were responded to in elementary school. I'm still, you know, I'm still facing the effects and trying to cope with the effects of that. So, uh, so even though it might not come out in such a loud way, you know, I, I think it's still something that, that we need to, uh, that we need to uh, attend to. Yeah. yeah you, and I think you're absolutely right that when we think about our students at every level, we have these students that need us to see them and to take time to hear them and connect with them. Uh, I just, I, yeah, I appreciate your response, but I, I know from my own experience, I was really, I was struck by it that uh, the secondary level seemed um, a, a less happy place to be 
um, generally, but yeah, it's good. Yeah, well, I think also, you know, as kids grow older, they, they have and feel more responsibility. And so the layers of things, mm -hmm. you know, there are just more and more layers there, you know, and then you know, they're also dealing with relationships. Yeah, and, right. uh, and, uh, and now, of course, uh, social media addictions and, mm -hmm. and there's lots of layers of stuff going on. So you mentioned, uh, Dr. Gorski, about the fact that um, you are a proponent of trauma-informed education and practices. So how do we then implement it in a way that doesn't fall into the trap that you discussed earlier, where it just becomes a yesterday fad and we move on to something else? That's a great question. And I think this is true of all of these kinds of uh, popular initiatives. I think what ends up happening is these initiatives that really could be about institutional transformation, shifting the way that we think and the way that we react and the way that we respond and, the, and our ideologies and institutional understandings. If we took trauma-informed education and, and we used it as a model to literally transform that, I think it would be very transformative and powerful, but that's not how it's used. It's used as a series of strategies and it's used selectively. And I think that's the problem. So if we could use the sort of the tenets or values of trauma-informed education, for instance, uh, reserving judgment and, and responding with care instead of judgment. And, and I, I think unfortunately, you know, it, so often, one of the things I do in my consulting work is I do policy analysis for schools. And, and uh, so often I'll see like a student conduct handbook and at the beginning, they're talking about how much they value trauma-informed education and social emotional and how much they value diversity and diversity of expression. And, and then you get halfway into the thing and I talked about this in the article, but but the but you get halfway into the document and the document itself is not even consistent with the, the trauma-informed mindset because if i have a trauma-informed mindset i'm not predetermining punishments for every possible thing that a student might do if i'm predetermining punishments and i'm just reactively applying those then that is against just the basic values of trauma-informed education which is that i, I want to understand the underlying causes of behaviors which might be connected to traumas and not just be reactive. Um, so I think if it could be applied like that, like in the article I say, uh, I say that a, uh, a uh, uh, now I can't think of the word I used, a uh, culture that is hyper punitive is, does not work with trauma-informed education. I think 90% of schools have hyperpunitive cultures. 90% of schools that are doing trauma-informed still have hyperpunitive cultures and keep hiring people with hyperpunitive ideologies. And, and that's the problem. If we really applied them deeply and applied them as ways to rethink what we're doing in education, you know, that that's, you know, I think then it has this tremendous potential to really transform the way adults relate with uh, children. Unfortunately, that's mostly not how it's uh, being applied. 
Right. It just, everything we put in education just sort of gets layered on top, one on top of the other, instead of, you know, really fundamentally changing the foundation of education, which could then maybe lead to some lasting change. Absolutely. I mean, the same thing's true about the whole social emotional thing. It's like schools do social and emotional damage to kids. Mm -hmm. What schools are, not all schools, but many schools, all schools probably do that to some kids, but but the idea is that the kids bring that stuff with them. So it's something we have to do to the kids instead of something we have to do to the school, which Mm -hmm. would really be a much more transformative vision for it. Yeah. I was so struck in the article, just your highlighting the response that I've heard often as a leader, uh, how are they going to learn to be responsible or it's my job to get them ready for whatever the next step is, college or high school or, right, some other expectation. And, and you touch on it a little bit in the article, but I'd love to hear from you. When, when you do hear that from educators, what are some language that leaders could use to sort of soften uh, people's, like, demand for that? We've got to hold them accountable. Well, uh, I answer that in a couple ways. And in one sense, I think that's a hiring issue. I do not think, I think teachers who come in with that ideology, I think there's a superiority complex happening there. It might not be conscious and it might be something that can be educated out of people, but there's gotta be an intervention about that before that person is put in front of children. That is such a nasty attitude to have with children. You know, I, I just don't understand that. And, uh, you know, most of my work revolves around equity sort of things. And, and the, this responsibility discourse, I think, is applied mostly to kids in high poverty communities and kids of color. That's not something that I hear when I go into wealthier schools, predominantly or predominantly white schools. I always think this is so, this is so odd. So you might have a kid whose family is experiencing poverty, who is going home from school and taking care of younger siblings, maybe working to help feed the family, but, and then is maybe struggling to get their homework done or is maybe tired in school. And the interpretation of that is that that child is being irresponsible. It's like that child has a tremendous amount of responsibility. So, um, So I think the I think the important thing is to just sort of try to kind of open a different window of understanding, which is, you know, I wonder if there might be an explanation for this other than this person is being irresponsible. Uh, I wonder if there's anything we could change about what we're doing to make this more accessible to the student instead of jumping to the conclusion that, um, you know, that, uh, and I also think doing something that is irresponsible as an educator, I don't think that that models responsibility. (laughs) So doing something that is harming children, that's not a good way to model responsibility if you're trying to model responsibility. So I would say, okay, well, what are other ways we can model responsibility that aren't based on all these presumptions and potentially doing harm? Do you think, um, I just, this occurred to me as you were talking, um, do you think that schools should be maybe attending to 
the social and emotional needs of the adults in the building so that they can be more available for the kids. Because I wonder sometimes, um, I think I'll, there's a lot of unhealthiness in society and that has to obviously bleed into schools. And so, you know, what what's your thought about how do we do that for teachers so that they can be or maybe we just need, it goes back to hiring. We need to look for people who are already socially and emotionally sound, but I don't know. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I think you're exactly right. I mean, think about, uh, you know, teaching is a very stressful job. Yeah. It is in many ways a very thankless, thankless job. I mean, I know, you know, we get positive feedback from students, but in the broader society, uh, teaching as a profession is disrespected in a way that it's not disrespected in a lot of other societies. It's very stressful, very time consuming, and especially, and then, yeah, add all the layers now of uh, the additional stressors. Uh, I even mentioned in the article that, you know, we need to be trauma uh, aware with one another uh, uh, as well. So yeah. I do think schools need to do a much better job of attending to the social emotional well-being of, of adults. Um, and, um, and I think that would help tremendously. Do you feel that uh, there are pockets or places, examples, if you will, especially during this time where there's so much home learning and uh, a tremendous amount of pressure put on families, um, you know, during this COVID-19 time. Do you, do you know or have messages of hope about examples where it's going well, where, where schools really have embraced at a deep level uh, this community of caring for each other and instead of, you know, an intense focus on the, you know, ways that we are gonna bust kids, right? The ways that we're trying to support and, and embrace and encourage. I don't have specific examples of specific schools or districts like that, but, but I do know of some specific sort of practices and, uh, and approaches that are um, sort of kind of happening along those lines that, that I think could be, uh, you know, could be models. Like, like I know, I, I know there are uh, places where people are talking a lot more about sort of leading with com compassion. I think one of the things that's happening that's really great is people are, I think there's, people are, because of what's happening, people are practicing sort of attending to context. Like everyone doesn't have the same context. So let's think about the context some people have. Well, not everyone has a bedroom with a computer in it and a quiet place to log on. And we shouldn't be punishing them for that that can be projected forward into, I mean, that should have, you know, we, we should have always had that mindset, right. but the, the opportunity to take that and sort of project it forward into a, just a broader uh, sort of, uh, you know, I have to understand the challenges and barriers and not just sort of jump to a, a deficit view. I, I think the sort of practice schools and districts are getting with that kind of mindset is going to be really powerful moving forward and it's a it's a beautiful thing to behold you know it's a beautiful thing to behold you know the the movements like against uh grading uh during a pandemic and against especially giving students failing grades giving a during a pandemic uh 
I think those sorts of things. I think some of the pedagogical things that are that are uh, happening um, are are uh, you know I think a lot of those things if we can carry them forward uh, we'll say gosh we should have been doing this all along you know yeah and I'm so glad to hear you say it because in many ways I've been recognizing that that we are becoming better through this process. Uh, and it has really forced us to be aware of every action we take because, you know, it, it, I heard this comparison once, you know, working in these distance ed environments is like teaching underwater. So you have to be so thoughtful about every decision that you make and every action. And, uh, and I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of hope there about us reflecting on every choice we've been making and uh, yeah. hopefully we can carry it forward. Uh, and I would um, say that too. I would say that too, in terms of going back to that question about the well-being of of teachers, and I hope that that gets carried forward too. I, I do think there's more attentiveness to that, uh, and I think it's something that has been sort of grossly underlooked. Yeah. Um, and uh, and hopefully that you know get, gets carried forward as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, I have a question about microaggressive trauma because I think that that is um, an interesting concept that you present in the article. And um, I, I'd love for you to touch on it because I think a lot of folks in education especially say, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm a nice person or I'm not racist or whatever the case might be. And um, we just uh, tend to do things or say things that um, uh, could perpetuate that trauma. So maybe could, you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So micro, so, so I think a lot of people understand trauma as big events that happen that cause trauma so, or, or um, sort of obvious things that I could point to, like, uh, you know, like some of the stuff that, that might be on the uh, ACEs uh, uh, adverse childhood experiences sort of thing, or, you know. It, my parents went through a hard divorce or, you know, or, uh, you know, I was sexually assaulted or something like that. So most people think of trauma like that. Microaggressive trauma refers to the accumulative impact of just the smaller kind of day-to-day -day things that build up over time and create trauma over uh, time. So, so it might be something like take, you know, I, I, you know, I'm in one class, and I feel, you know, invisible in the curriculum, or I feel invisible in the class, you know, and that's a harmful experience, but might not be a big trauma. But if that is my normal experience in school, then the, the accumulative impact of that happening over time, you know, has an impact on me. Or one experience of bullying, you might think, is one experience can create actually cause uh, trauma, but uh, microaggressive trauma is the accumulative impact of just instances of that building up over time that can, you know, that can over time leave somebody with the same sort of traumatic symptoms uh, that they would have had if they had experienced one big, easily definable thing that happened to, to them. And so some people argue that most trauma uh, is, you know, if we're, if we're only looking for people who have had these big experiences that can be easily named, we're actually missing most of the impact of trauma. 
you know, the trauma of structural racism, which might not have been somebody screaming the N-word at me, but might have been just, you know, things that happen over time, you know, teachers calling me the wrong name, teachers mixing me up with someone else, plus invisibility in the curriculum, plus hearing racist jokes in the hallway, plus observing teachers not doing anything about the racist jokes being told. So over time, the, the trauma and the, the symptoms of that in schools, which could be feelings of disconnection, feelings of alienation, uh, sort of build up uh, uh, over time. I am so um, moved by that thought, right? That we just recognize the plus and the plus and the plus and the plus, right? And how that cumulative effect is, is um, just is like, you know, water on sandstone just keeps wearing away. And I was thinking about some meetings I've had with teachers and some supervisors where they were trying to address how to support uh, students who recognize or are identifying as LGBTQ. And there was this hesitancy because they, they just didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to respond. They felt that there was actually some legal issues around even there trying to engage in conversations in their classrooms. And I just walked away from that meeting feeling like I really want to help teachers gain skills at being able to navigate difficult conversations in, in their classrooms. Um, because I think they're afraid. I think they're afraid of doing it wrong or making it worse. Can you speak to that? I, I get a, definitely get a sense of that fear a lot. And, and, and to be honest, you know, I got two graduate degrees in education and took all kinds of education courses and none of them prepared me to do that. You know, I, I never, you know, none of my classes that dealt with pedagogy taught me how to do that. So, you know, so, so this, this is not something that most teachers are getting in their, in their licensure yeah. programs. Uh, so, you know, I, I think there needs to be some professional development around that. Uh, it is hard you know, it, it's not easy for somebody who has never learned how to do it to learn how to do it. And it can feel uneasy. And it's really, really critical if I can challenge building leaders, because also there's the challenge of, I don't know if my principal is going to back me up on this. Yeah. I do this, a kid goes and tells their parents, the parents calls the principal. I don't know if someone's going to have my back. And, and teachers have gotten fired, literally. Yeah for doing just even basic engagement around some of these issues. So, um, you know, so that, that's really hard. So leadership's gotta be supportive. There's gotta be some professional development so people have more confidence. And the one, the one way that I would challenge um, fellow educators on this is it is hard and it is uncomfortable, uh, but it's not as hard or as uncomfortable as being a child in school who's experiencing that stuff and nobody is talking about it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, so being an adult, <laughs> a professional adult, learning how to engage people in those conversations is not as hard as being a kid dealing with the repercussions of adults not taking the responsibility to learn how to do that. 
Yeah, thank you. And I, I completely agree. Not only our teacher prep programs, but even from, you know, some old parts like us where we are still needing to improve on our skills and being able to lead others in those dialogues, right? You know, in that conversation, whether it's in a classroom or even with a group of educators. Um, Absolutely. It, it just can't continue to be ignored. Yeah, yeah totally agree. I wanted to switch it up just a little bit selfishly because um, I first got into your work uh, when you were writing about the culture of poverty um, and responding to uh, some of the writing that was out there, some of the work that was out there about a culture of poverty. Um, I was in a district at the time that really uh, some principals were really embracing that and bringing it to their staffs and they were reading the book. And, um, and then when I saw your work, I was, you know, relieved that it was available and out there. So can you talk a little bit about that work and your response to this sort of notion of a culture of poverty? Why is that a dangerous concept? Yeah, well, the notion of a culture mindset of poverty, the, I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of things that make it dangerous, but uh, I think the most dangerous thing about it is it's just a very deficit-oriented uh, approach that, you know, the, uh, you know, I think about it this way, I, you know, imagine having a room full of students who are from uh, families that are experiencing poverty, who don't have enough to eat, who don't have good health care, who don't have access to decent public services, who, uh, you know, are denied because of their family's poverty, just the most basic human rights and looking at them and my impulse being, what we need to do is change your culture or your mindset. I just don't get, I just don't get that, how that is the interpretation of that, rather than, well, this is completely unjust. This is completely unjust. So, uh, so you know, that, that was really popular for a while, that notion of cultural poverty or mindset of poverty in it. It sort of goes to what I was just saying, where it takes the responsibility out of us, the adults, the professionals, and says, well, what do we need to fix about those people? What do we need to fix about their mindsets, their cultures, their values, their uh, attitudes, their behaviors? Uh, and uh, and, and the, the result of that is, so, th so that's a problem in and of itself. The other problem with that is that it kind of obscures the conversation we need to be having, which is what are the inequities? What are the biases? What are the barriers that people experiencing poverty face? What are the barriers that we put up in schools without even knowing that we're putting up barriers? That, and, and my desperation is to have that conversation. And my argument is, and, and my problem with it is most people who find this idea that there's a culture of poverty that needs to be fixed, most of them, it wouldn't even occur to them to ask the question, what are the challenges and barriers? Because they're so focused on what do we need to fix about people experiencing yeah. poverty? And by the way, this is the same reason that we're failing to address discipline, racial discipline gaps, because the same attitude applied there is, well, what we need to do is fix the behaviors of students of color. What we need to do is we need emotion regulation. The problem is what the research shows is that the, those disparities in who gets suspended and expelled has nothing to do with the behaviors 
of black students or Latinx students or indigenous students. It is completely connected to, uh, to uh, teacher bias and, and how teachers interpret subjective behaviors. And think about all the resources, th this is the other sort of implication, but think about all the resources that schools are putting into programs and initiatives that are trying to solve this discipline gap by adjusting the behaviors of kids. And it is, it is completely inefficient because the, this problem has nothing to do with the behaviors of kids. It has to do with the bias of adults. And so, so that's the other part of the problem with that, that sort of deficit view. It's the same mindset as the culture of poverty, which is we're trying to fix people who are marginalized instead of trying to eliminate the ways people are marginalized. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Gorski, for joining us. Our last question that we always ask our guests uh, is if you could step into a time machine and go back and talk to your younger self when you were first becoming an educator, what advice would you give your younger self? Wow, I think uh, the advice I would give my younger self would be, you know, I'm a very introverted person by nature but I'm also a very outspoken person on matters of equity and justice. And I would have told my younger self to, to work harder, to build relationships, to, uh, uh, to find, uh, you know, of course I've been part of many different communities as an educator, but earlier on, I wish I had found more community with other people who were standing up, you know, speaking up about things that are often punished when people speak up about them. Uh, and, uh, you know, finding my people within the education world, yeah. I, I think, you know, I wish I had been more uh, attentive to that. Thank you. And thank you for creating a community that the rest of us can find. Uh, because we appreciate your leadership again, uh, the, the light that you're providing for us as we continue to challenge our own thinking and the work that we're doing um, in the system, right, in our schools or even at a greater level at, in policies with the district in the state. Uh, thank you so much. It, it has been such a pleasure uh, working with you. Thank you for taking a little time out of your very busy schedule to share with us. And, and again, um, continue, uh, if you don't mind, I could just be so bold to say continue blazing the trail. Uh, and hopefully we, we will be able to follow in your footsteps and, and support our students, all of our students. Well, thank you all. It's been wonderful uh, talking to you and, and, uh, and uh, I, I appreciate the little community we built uh, here in just the last little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. And, and good luck with all your work. I, I do want to mention just quickly that you're the founder of the Equity Literacy Institute, right? And uh, your latest book is Reaching and Teaching Students in Poverty. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Great. So check it out. Yes, exactly. Thank you and have a fantastic rest of your day. Okay. Bye-bye.